welcome back to the Spartan History Podcast. This is episode 19, The Expansion of Sparta. Last time we took a look at the different forms of worship and festival practiced in early Sparta, paying particular attention to its nature of duality. The distillation of the broader Hellenic world's religious practices at this period into the Olympic pantheon is one of the key indicators of the culture's shift from the dark to archaic age. Typified by the rise of the Delphic Oracle in the early parts of the 8th century BCE, a truly pan-Hellenic place of pilgrimage, the centre of the Greek world. This and other such religious revelations, along with language, would prove the glue that bound the soon-to-be disparate peoples across the Mediterranean and Black Seas together. I say disparate because coinciding with religious consolidation, Greece began a period of colonisation and migration underpinned by greater degrees of individual prosperity. We've seen previously the denuding of population that occurred after the Bronze Age collapse, where strong central governments that once provided a storable surplus crumbled and left former subjects to best fend for themselves. Some starved, to be sure, but many migrated then too in search of greener pastures. The migrations of the early archaic phase were due to converse effects and were of a more structured nature. The coalescing of central government, embodied by the new polis, or city-state, led to a greater stability and growth of population. Always a rugged land, this explosion in population stressed an already fragile and frugal food supply. There are also factions of political dissidents that arose out of the centralisation of governments, groups that weren't on board with the new status quo. And also, as we've seen previously, not just scarce of fertile land, Greece was in many ways materially poor. The response to these factors was individual city-states sending out colonies to every shore of the Mediterranean and Black Seas. Lasting from about 750 to 550 BCE, this colonisation phase had the benefits of easing the burden of food security within the Greek mainland and spreading its culture throughout the known world. In his Phaedo dialogue, Plato famously remarked that the Greeks were like ants or frogs scattered around a pond. Indeed, in his time, some 200 years after the phase finalised and before Roman conquest, it must have seemed just like that. From perhaps no more than 150 poli on mainland Greece, by the end of this period, estimates put the number of Greek cities scattered across the Mediterranean at roughly 1,000. What really led to this massive overburdening of population? Surely farming techniques hadn't changed that much over the course of the Dark Ages? Perhaps not. What had changed was the material used to create agricultural tools, and that would be iron. Hesiod, in his didactic poem called The Works and Days, devotes the better part of 100 lines to a description on how to make an iron plough and how to best use it. Even going so far to instruct the reader that as the plough furrows the soil and the seeds are spread, you must have a slave follow behind with a mattock to hide the seeds, thus preventing it from becoming simply bird food. These new iron ploughs were more durable by far than their bronze counterparts, speeding up the tilling of soil. Moreover, due to the sturdiness of iron, new, tougher ground not previously farmed was made arable. This, along with the stabilisation of climate, led to a surplus of food and in time, a surplus of people. However, the land could only support so much. Just like at the end of the Bronze Age, though for different reasons, if this abundance of people were to survive, they needed to go elsewhere. Therefore, in an almost formulaic fashion, the increasingly large city-states shed their human burden via institutionalised migration. Speaking generally, the foundation of a new colony was an organised event, sponsored by the mother city, or sometimes cities, in cooperation. 
a leader was chosen from amongst the potential colonists who was not merely a figurehead, but was quite possibly responsible for much of the financial backing. In ancient Greek, this person was known as the Oikistus and served as a founder hero. Once dead, they generally had some type of cult worship set up around their tombs where they were celebrated in the foundational stories of the new city. These tombs were called Haroons, and from very ancient times they were believed to house the bones of famous heroes. Often the Delphic Oracle was consulted before the journey commenced, to receive the blessings of Apollo for the endeavour, and to glean some idea as to where they should sail. Although largely open to creative interpretation, the oracles gave the colony the stamp of Olympic approval. Almost certainly a high degree of reconnaissance was employed to find a suitable location, be it to influence a profitable trade route or to exploit a natural resource. Although called apokia in ancient Greek, which meant a home away from home, these daughter colonies held often limited affinity for their mother city and were for the most part entirely autonomous. There were instances equally of colonies working together with their parent city, and also of them engaging in war with each other. The new colonists gave up the citizenship of their former home and became citizens of a new city in a new land. It was through these means that Hellas alleviated his issue of overpopulation, and a great many cities partook in this collective cultural endeavour. This is all merely scaffolding to support the world within which Sparta existed. As in a great many things, they were an exception to the general rules of ancient Greek civilization. Sparta, save one, or possibly two cases which we'll get to, largely decided to go a different way when it came to easing the burden of a thriving populace. Seated as the city was at the head of one of the most fertile regions of all Greece, the Spartans relied primarily on outward, aggressive expansion to satisfy the need for more land and living space. In the process, making for themselves the largest Greek city-state by landmass of antiquity, Covering some 4,000 square kilometres at its peak, only Syracuse in Sicily, at roughly 2,000 square kilometres, came remotely close. Last time we looked at Sparta geographically, she was a loose collection of four villages on the right bank of the Eurotas. The story from this point of irrelevance, at let's say 800 BCE, to the city's domination militarily and politically of the Peloponnese by around 550 BCE, is a tough one to tease out. However, setting aside the mythical Lycurgus for a moment, that 250 years is the real Spartan story. The legend was forged during this period in a crucible of almost constant conflict. The Lacedaemonians, who came out the other side, were hammered and shaped into the most renowned killing force of the period. Rather than a quasi-mythical lawgiver coming along, waving a magic wand and creating a factory designed to create and perpetuate a warrior society, this period was responsible for the peculiar nature of Spartan culture. The trials and tribulations they faced required often drastic measures to ensure the city's success. And thanks use for it. Barely three generations after the time we'll be looking at over the next few episodes, the Spartans, along with Western civilization itself, would face and defeat quite possibly the greatest test of all time. Lycurgus legendarily instituted his reforms during the reign of King Harillus, which straddled the 800 BCE mark. To say that these sweeping reforms were entirely superfluous would indeed be a grand understatement for the Sparta of that period. Perhaps there were some dynastic tensions, along with the political unrest that naturally occurs when there is a crystallisation of internal policy, as certainly happened with the four original villages becoming effectively one unit. However, nothing in the evidence indicates there was a need for reformation at this point. In fact, apart from perhaps the creation or elevation of the second royal house of the Eurypontids to an almost equal footing with the older Agiad line, Nothing else of serious note likely occurred. 
What you will see though, as we look at Lacedaemonian history through the 8th and into the 6th centuries BCE, are circumstances evolving that would require large-scale changes to governance and custom. Isolated geographically and topographically as the Spartans were, and still are, they really didn't play a major part in the Greek world leaving the Dark Age. Recipients of the new alphabet, they were no great proponents of its use and no native history of their people comes down to its extent, or likely ever existed. The best we have is Xenophon, a 4th century Athenian who lived in Sparta for a time. Despite Plutarch mentioning that Lycurgus brought the works of Homer back from the Ionian coast of Turkey, the dates simply don't match. The first Panhellenic cultural events, the Olympic Games and the Delphic Oracle, whilst extremely popular in Sparta, were creations of other cities. Even the colonisation of new lands held little appeal. Situated miles from the sea, and never really having a great affinity for naval matters, the Spartans expanded their influence within the Peloponnese. The first evidence we have for the policy of local, aggressive expansion pursued by the Lacedaemonians comes with the Delphic Oracle. Issued in 775 BCE to the joint kings of the city, it directed their attentions to a town in the north known as Aegis. The action they took against this place is really the earliest event we can lock onto with some historicity. However, throughout the 9th and into the early 8th centuries BCE, the Spartans most definitely acquired local hegemony in central and southern Laconia. Despite a paucity of evidence, we have to work through it before we get to 775 and Aegis. The first such acquisition was most likely the city of Amicle, barely four miles to the south of Sparta. Amicle, naturally due to its proximity, has come up several times in this series already. Most recently, the last episode on religious practices, as by that time it was one, politically, if not entirely spiritually, with Sparta. Archaeological records indicate that unlike our focus, Amicle experienced continuous habitation from the Bronze Age right through the Dark Age. That the original inhabitants were of Archean stock can be of little doubt. Even Pausanias, in his description of Greece, expresses the Dorian nature of Sparta, juxtaposed against the Archean one of Amicle. Nevertheless, once again referring to the archaeology, by about 900 BCE, we can see little in the remains that would differentiate the Amicleans culturally from their Dorian neighbours, both having similar styles of pottery and votive offerings by that stage. The place's importance to the Spartan narrative cannot be overlooked, for its incorporation politically with the four villages of Sparta set the scene for the future. Never again would the Lacedaemonians offer up another opportunity for enfranchisement within collective Sparta. And from this point on, Sparta and Amicle must be considered fundamentally one and the same. How did Amicle become one with its powerful northern neighbour? It's a question much ink has been spilt over. Pausanias paints a picture in his third book of Sparta and Amicle locked in a bitter war over a protracted period, when finally, during the reign of King Telechus, the city was taken. Unfortunately for Pausanias, the dates really don't line up at all. The apparent assassination of Telechus by the Messenians to the west provided the catalyst for the First Messenian War. This, we will see shortly, occurred towards the end of the 8th century BCE and after Spartan dominance in Laconia. The latest date possible for Amiclean acceptance within the Spartan franchise would be around 800 BCE. Regardless, there is an interesting piece of evidence that might suggest despite outward appearances in the classical age, things weren't entirely harmonious, at least to start with, between the new and old citizens of Sparta. The ancient city of Theris, 
which rests on a mountain between Parissa and Camardi beaches on Santorini, was colonised around the 800 mark. Legendarily founded by the eponymous Thetis, a Dorian hero of Heraclitic extraction. Despite ambiguity around its Spartan descent, the ruins of Theris have revealed epigraphical evidence proving at the very least the city's Dorian descent. The main cause for Greek colonisation of the period was, as mentioned, food and land shortages. A secondary cause was most certainly political unrest and factional disunity. Was there a faction within Amicle that would have preferred to remain apart from Sparta? Were the members or families of this faction offered the option of banishment or migration? Impossible to say for sure, but I'll use its possibility to support a little friction in the absorption of amicably within Sparta's political framework. A colony in this era, because of a land shortage, doesn't stack up due to the amount of space the Laconians had available for conquest within the Eurotas Valley itself. No other great city stood in the way of conquest there. That leaves us with political motive for the foundation of Thera. Either way, sometime before the historical period, Amicle became one with Sparta, culturally, politically, and religiously, with presumably an equal say in the new state's governance. The next natural extension of Spartan influence was to the south of Amicle, where the Eurotas watershed opens up onto the Halos Plain, abutting the Aegean Sea. With the last city of any note absorbed within the political structure of Sparta, there was nothing to stop the new power from steamrolling its way down the valley and bringing the southern entirety of Laconia within the fold. With this extension of territory, the tripartite stratified nature of later Spartan society surely began to form. As from that area, the first communities of what would later be known as the Perioikoi and the Halots fell under the dominion of Sparta. The fertile Halos Plain was perhaps the first region where Halotry was enforced. However, any similarity between the term Halot and the Halos Plain is purely coincidental. It's more likely that the term Halot comes from the root of the Greek word for to be made prisoner or captive, which was Halliscomoi, a term that could equally apply to captives from any area and not just the Halos Plain. The enslavement of the region's population was the beginning of a 500-year period of servitude under Spartan rule. The Petioikoi too, as a middle class, would have had their first test run during this period as well. Primarily populating the hilly and coastal areas of Laconia, they lived up to their name as dwellers around. I've talked previously of their possible origins as well, but would reinforce their possible Dorian origins with the fact that despite such a massive extension of Spartan territory in a relatively small amount of time, it has made not one blip on the archaeological record. If indeed they were of Dorian extraction, their assimilation into Spartan society would seem an almost natural extension and, threatened with the obvious example of slavery going on in the southern plainlands of Laconia, a second tier of political recognition would have seemed vastly preferable to any one of them. The Spartans were masters of the divide-and-conquer stratagem. Before moving on from these early and vague conquests onto events a little more concrete, I have to mention some ambiguity in my dating of Amiclean union with Sparta as having occurred before their conquest of southern Laconia. It is just as likely, and it is supported in sources most notably by Pausanias, that Amicle became one with Sparta only after its conquest of Laconia. As the second most powerful city in the region, it's possible that although the people of Amicle were able to resist Sparta initially, once they were existing in a veritable sea of Lacedaemonians, the city's leaders made the decision to join the Spartan franchise. The Amiclean position of strength is supported by their full enfranchisement of political rights too. 
Perhaps the Spartans initially went around, rather than through their southern neighbour. Either theory works, and it has its proponents. What is truly important to understand is that before Sparta cast her gaze north of the Eurotas watershed, she had a fully compliant area of influence to the south, a strong base of operations with connections to the sea. Now, we come to Aegis. At the northern extreme of the Eurotas watershed lies the plain of Megalopolis, the great city. Named for a city that was founded there during the 4th century BCE, a name its modern equivalent still shares. Descending into the plain from the north is one of the most spectacular sights in mainland Greece. Travelling down a winding road, a stunning plain stretches forth, incongruous for its apparent flatness bordered as it is by rugged crags. A beautiful view that is only slightly disturbed by the large stacks of the Megalopolis power plant. The plain itself is rich in lignite, or brown coal, which provides the natural resource to power the plant's turbines. In ancient times, long before coal had any great value, these lignite deposits could catch fire in the summer heat, leading many to believe it was a place where gods once did battle. Herodotus even records that it was the place of the legendary Titanomachy, the battle in which the Olympian gods defeated the Titans. It was to this plain that the twin Spartan kings, Harillus and Archelaus, were sent by the instruction of the Delphic Oracle to conquer the as yet undiscovered site of ancient Aegis. The year was recorded as 775 BCE, merely one year after the inauguration of the ancient Olympic Games. A mere minor footnote in history, the Spartans' attack and subsequent annexation of Aegis and the surrounding area provides us with our first reasonably solid dating for territorial expansion. From here in, thanks to the works of later historians, we'll be on a more stable footing when it comes to rough dating of Spartan activities. One thing we get out of the attack on Aegis is that the oracle dooming it was delivered jointly to both kings. They ruled jointly from 775 to 760, so the dates just work within the given time frame. Others have suggested, and I agree, that this was the first joint rule within Sparta, setting aside the legendary descent of the two royal houses from the sons of Heracles. Herodotus mentions that the Delphic oracle also dictated that the Archaeid house was the more senior of the two, abstractly indicating that they were also the first. We can almost take Plutarch's life of Lycurgus a little more prosaically when he suggests in it that the nobles were jostling for favour and position, and that Sparta was on the verge of insurrection. Perhaps the rise of the Eurypontid dynasty can be seen as a measure to placate these restive aristocrats, offering their premier family a seat at the table of kingship. Just so with the citizens of Sparta as well. For now, the city controlled the entirety of Laconia within the bounds of the Parnon and Teigetus mountains. Their next act proves beyond doubt that internal pressure for more land due to overpopulation was a serious concern, when as a people, they defied the isolated geography of their land and exploded violently out of its borders. Before we get there, let's just have a quick look at why the Spartans would pursue territorial expansion within the Peloponnese, whilst in other regions, Greek city-states were sending out a great many colonists to seed new lands. Firstly, as we've already seen, they had successfully extended their home base across Laconia through conquest. Tasting a measure of success, it stands to reason that they would continue militant means to satisfy land hunger. The old adage, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, applies here. Secondly, we can assume that their model of stratified society had already been laid out in practice with these new acquisitions. Containing both helot and periochic communities, 
The citizens of Sparta would already be enjoying the emancipation from manual labour that came from having an enslaved class of workers. Apply the old adage once more. Lastly, and most crucial I believe, is that the common model applied to the colonisation involved the colonists giving up citizenship in their mother city and taking on that of the daughter colony. With such success, such pedigree, already in these early years, I can't imagine too many of the Spartiates being enwrapped with the idea of abandoning a bloodline that stretched right back to Heracles, and had been clearly endorsed by the gods. Not a fair trade at all. No. I think those left out of the land divisions that occurred during this early period of expansion clamoured at the halls of power, demanding a slice of the enfranchisement that was their birthright. To avoid all-out civil war, the power brokers of Sparta looked over, or rather around, at nearby Messinia. The first Messinian war ran roughly from 740 to 720 BCE and set the Spartans well and truly down the path of a lifestyle suited with a permanent war footing. The intervening years between its outbreak and the conquest of Aegis can be seen as a period of consolidation for the new lands and an increasing time of internal discord. The pressure building up over those three to four decades and eventually exploding in a tide of conquest over neighbouring Messenia. Our best sources for the war are fragmentary remains of Tertius's poetry and the history given by Pausanias. The former composing his works in the mid-7th century BCE and the latter in the 2nd century CE. We are told that the casus belli for the conflict happened sometime earlier than the conflict itself during the reign of the Argead king Telechus. According to Pausanias, the king had travelled to a sanctuary of Artemis Limnatis, basically the Lady of the Lake, with a group of chosen female virgins. Ostensibly there to propitiate the goddess, at the temple the group are attacked by neighbouring Messenians and are all slaughtered, Telechus included. The location of the sanctuary was on the border of Sparta and Messenia, and was supposedly a joint festival for both peoples. We are also told the opposing view, that the virgins were in fact a group of beardless youths brought incognito by Telechus to attempt a raid on the Messenian party. Discovering the perfidy, they butchered these inexperienced troops and their royal leader. Pausanias dates this event to the Third Olympiad, or 768, but this is really too early for my liking, as it's more probable that Harillus and Archelaus still jointly ruled Sparta at this time. Regardless of the date given, or the alleged aggressor in the incident, the Spartans used this as a catalyst for satisfying the growing voice for expansion back home. Their forces marched under the leadership of the Argead king Alcmenes, the son of the murdered Telechus, and the Eurypontid king Theopompus, the grandson of Harillus. To get around the imposing chain of the Teigetus Mountains, they first went north to the plain of Megalopolis and skirted around the top of that imposing natural barrier. Here, they penetrated Messenia into the fertile Parmissos Valley. The first battle of note was a nighttime attack launched by King Alcmenus against the hilltop stronghold of Amphia in the year 738 BCE. The Spartans were successful in capturing the town and put the survivors to the sword. Caught off guard by the surprise raid and the lack of an official declaration of war, the Messenians called up the men of fighting age and began to prepare in earnest for the war ahead. The next few years seemed to have resolved themselves as a series of skirmishes, with the Spartans digging into their recently conquered beachhead and the Messenians under King Euphaeus repelling their attempted advances. Little is known about the style of warfare practiced by the Greeks at this period, with the advent of proto-hoplite tactics still around 50 years away. The use of chariots seemed to have died out with the Mycenaean age. In truth, they probably only used them for transport. 
and the nature of Greek terrain didn't naturally lend itself to cavalry formations or manoeuvres. Siegecraft was well-nigh existent, and most cities were taken through treachery rather than overt violence. The loosely formed war bands consisting of infantry, archers, and slingers were the most likely type of fighting force to be found at this time. Any reference Pausanias makes to serried ranks of troops are anachronistic. After three years of this semi-stalemate, Euphaeus decides that the time is right for an offensive and sends an army into Lacedaemonian territory. Alerted by their forward garrison at Amphia, the Spartans send out a force to meet their enemies in battle. The field, we aren't told where exactly, was a place favourable to war but bifurcated nonetheless by a deep ravine. This depression prevented any artful evolution of troops, but the battle was joined with alacrity by both sides who went at each other with all the hate built up by years of war. Meanwhile, King Euphaeus, back at the camp, began to fortify his position on all sides bar that facing the conflict. At night, when the fighting broke off, he fortified his front once his men were safely within the enclosure. On the morrow, the Spartans seeing the fortifications before them realised they hadn't the will nor the ability for a siege and departed for Laconia. Left in charge of the field, the Messinians claimed a victory for themselves. However, a year later, and after much browbeating by the city's elders, the Lacedaemonians marched to war once more, this time under the leadership of Theopompus and Polydorus, who succeeded the now-dead Alcmanus. Each commanding a separate wing of the army, the Spartans met the Messinians again on an unnamed field. The description of the battle lends itself to the massed phalanx warfare that would become preponderant in Greece over the coming centuries, but it seems the Spartans outnumbered their foes significantly. Having brought allies with them, including some Argive exiles and a contingent of Cretan archers. As an aside, this last part is backed up by some archaeological data in the form of a contemporary Cretan helmet discovered in a warrior burial in Messenia. The indication is that the battle was a close-fought thing, but Spartan experience and discipline won out over Messenian fury and indignation. At one stage, King Euphaeus, commanding the wing of his troops facing that of Theopompus, beat the Spartans back in some heated fighting. However, Polydorus utterly routed his opposing force and, circling back onto Euphaeus's men, carried the day for the men of Laconia. Broken by the loss of life and the privation from years of occupation, the Messinians retreated, not for the last time in their history, to the mountain fortress of Ithome. Mentioned in the Iliad, this place had many defences, both man-made and natural. At a loss as to what to do next, the Messinians were impotent to stop the Spartans ravaging their lands over the next few years when finally, at wit's end, the besieged Greeks slipped one of their number through the enemy lines to seek out Apollo's wisdom at Delphi. Having received the oracle, Tesis, the man sent, was caught coming through Spartan lines attempting to return to Ithome. Surrounded and wounded, he was prepared to give his life when a mystical voice spoke, let the bearer of the oracle go free. Ever pious, the Spartans relinquished their captive and allowed him to deliver the god's message to King Euphaeus, dying afterwards. The oracle instructed the Messinians to by lot choose one of the daughters from the noble house of the Epitidae and by the moonlight sacrifice her. In spite of the god's proclamation, the father of the girl chosen took his daughter and went over to the Spartan side rather than offer her up for sacrifice. Seeing that father and daughter had fled, the Messinians despaired their collective fates. It was then that another noble of the Epitidae willingly offered up his own daughter as a replacement sacrifice. As Aristotomus was preparing to send his own daughter to the underworld to propitiate the god, the girl's lover came forward 
and claiming that the father had no right to kill her as she was pregnant and therefore part of this unnamed Messenian's household. Flying into a rage, Aristimus killed his daughter on the spot, cutting her open to prove once and for all that she was not pregnant. Mad with grief, the father and the rest of the Messenians believed that they had fulfilled the oracle's wishes, but they had forgotten one important element. The girl was not slain by the light of the moon. The Spartans hearing the news of the oracle and subsequent sacrifice too fell into despair, believing that divine favour had shifted from them. Testing the ore spices for war regularly, they were surprised five years later when they all came back overwhelmingly positive for attack. Inspired, they invaded Messenia en masse and assaulted the walls of Ithome. Fierce fighting erupted around the castle, and King Euphaeus himself led out a sally to repel the invaders. Making straight for Theopompus, the Messenian king overreached himself and received a great many wounds, collapsing on the field, though still alive. Like a pack of rabid dogs over a bone, the two forces swamped the body of the king, attempting to claim it as their own. He was eventually brought back within the walls of Hithome, but died of his wounds several days later. He had spent 13 years as king, all of them at war with the Lacedaemonians. The title passed to the aforementioned Aristhemus, whom had already sacrificed so much for the war effort and was worthy of the position. Over the next few years, another stalemate ensued, with neither side being able to gain the upper hand. Almost completely exhausted by the protracted conflict, the Messenians staked everything and went on the offensive, calling up every available man including forces of Arcadian and Argive allies. They marched out of Ithome to meet the Spartans in battle once more. The Laconians met them with a force of Corinthian allies. It would be the largest and the penultimate battle of the First Messenian War. Unfortunately, Pausanias's retelling of the encounter is one better suited to the Greek battlefields of the 5th and 4th centuries, but there are some details that I think hold water. It looks as though the event took place close to the walls of Ithome, with the Spartan forces being assaulted not only by a sally of picked men, but also flanked by the allies of the Messenians. Pressed tightly, and from all sides, a hidden force of light javelinists delivered the final blow by hurling missiles into the packed ranks of the Spartans, sending them and their Corinthian allies into a panic flight. Despite their victory, the Messenians were unable to follow up their success and were forced to return to the status quo of the siege. Frustrated with their failed attempts to take Ithome, the Laconians resorted to more nefarious means to attempt victory. First, they tried to send a hundred men to beguile the Messenians, claiming to be deserters, but their real mission was to learn the secrets of the enemy. King Aristhemus banished the so-called traitors away, stating, The crimes of the Lacedaemonians were new, but their tricks are old. Next, an attempt was made to break up the alliance formed between Argos, Arcadia, and Messenia. Defeated in their attempts against the Arcadians, the Spartans decided discretion was the better part of valour and did not even attempt an action against the Argives. The crushing defeat experienced by the Spartans outside Ithome in no way improved life for the victors. Entrenched as their enemies were, they could only watch from afar as events transpired in the Peloponnese, powerless to have any influence upon them. Managing to get one of their own through to the Delphic Oracle once more, Apollo's priestess gave them advice on how to alleviate the situation. Unfortunately, the information was promptly sold to the Spartans, who used it against the Messenians, thwarting their attempts to use Apollo. Bereft of divine aid, the people of Aristobus watched the years slowly tick by with no hope of succour. As the war entered its twentieth year, the guilt of his past filicide finally bore down on the king, and dreaming one night of his daughter, she showed her father the rends in her body he had caused. Waking, 
Aristippus was so filled with grief, he committed suicide in her tomb. It would be the death knell for Mycenaean freedom. Rather than choose another noble to lead them, the people voted a general named Damas to the throne. With only one course of action left open, he led his people back out the city gates and into the teeth of the waiting Spartan forces. Damas was one of the first to be killed, and the Mycenaeans, starving and tired, were utterly crushed on the site of one of their most famous victories. Call it a surrender, or an outright capitulation, the result was the same. Spartan hegemony across much of Mycenae without condition. Those that could fled their country, some to Argos and Arcadia, others to Athens, but for the vast majority who had not the means or the will, they became slaves to the new overlords. Helitage was to be theirs, and their descendants' lot for the next 400 years, and the Spartan yoke weighed heavily upon them. Twice as long as the conflict outside of Troy, the First Mycenaean War was over, but was this one any less a fantasy than Homer's story? It's a good question, and certainly Pausanias writing nearly a millennium after the events doesn't spare the ink in its retelling. He explicitly lays out his sources, naming two at the beginning of his section on Messenia. One Myron of Prini, and a poet from Crete called Rhinus, both alleged to have written their works in the 3rd century BCE, the first in prose and the second in epic verse. Unfortunately, neither of their works is extant, and for Rhinus, there is some ambiguity as to whether he was writing about the first or the second Messenian war. There is even some debate about whether or not Pausanias had these sources directly or received the information through a secondary source. Analysis of his third main source, the Spartan poet Tertius, does give us a little structure to the outline of the war. Although he wrote heavily on the topics of law and order during the later Second Mycenaean War, he nonetheless referenced the earlier war in his work. I'll read forth a couple of quotes from his fragmentary remains that should put some meat on the bone, so to speak. The first here is a celebration of the Spartan kings whose reign encompassed the war, Theopompus. To our king, the friend of the gods, Theopompus, through whom we took spacious Messene. Messene, so good to plough and so good to plant, for which there fought ever unceasingly nineteen years, keeping an unfaltering heart, the spearman, father of our fathers, and in the twentieth year the foeman left his lands and fled from the great uplands of Ithome. Second, a description of the suffering borne by the defeated Messenians. Like asses, worn by their great burdens, bring of dire necessity to their masters the half of all the fruits the corn land bears. The first clearly lays out the timeline for the war as a conflict of twenty years, attributing its successful conclusion to Theopompus. As a Europontid king, and the only one of the two houses to have lived throughout the war's entirety, this is perhaps a fair attribution on behalf of the poet. Ithome is mentioned in the sense that it was the last redoubt for the Messenians, from where their final retreat was staged. I find it almost comical that Tertius comments about how easy the land is to plough in Messene, considering the Spartans themselves would never have had to worry about the clement nature of the sword at all, using enslaved Messenians for that task exclusively. The second fragment bears out the loser's fate in stark detail. Compared with donkeys, or asses, they had to supply their new masters with half of their produce. This is something also repeated by later commentators on Spartan-Hellot relationships. I think we can take Pausanias' account with a large grain of salt in its detail, but clearly there was a significant struggle for control of Messene. The mere fact Tertius is writing during the Second War presupposes that there must have been a first. A large, fertile, 
and populous region with a proud history, it makes sense the locals were none too keen to be divested of its control and themselves placed in perpetual bondage. And for the Spartans, of equally proud bearing and history, staving off internal insurrection with the hope of new lands for division and settlement, that they too would commit so completely to a protracted war. With all that being said, the end result was the same. That Spartan control extended across much of Messenia by the end of the 8th century BCE can be of little doubt. I still believe at this point it's too early to try and match the post-war settlement to the mythical Lycurgan reforms. The bitterly fought Second Messinian War provides much more impetus for cultural and societal reform, and this conflict of revolt demanded the Spartans severely change their way of life or have it cease to exist entirely. Commensurate with that idea is the fact that the Second War happened at all, showing the Laconians were happy for life to return to a status quo without properly solving the Messinian question, a question we will look at in detail in the next episode. So, we'll leave the narrative here at around 720 BCE, with Sparta dominating the region of Laconia and, defying their geography, impressing a harsh hegemony on their Peloponnesian neighbours to the west. There won't be an episode next month. I've recently started a new job which has been incredibly busy. Coupled with double monthly episodes, I really haven't been able to spend as much time with my family as I'd like. I intend to do some work on the website, spartanhistorypodcast.com, adding a blog and updating a few things. The show will be returning in the new year on Sunday the 10th of January 2021 with what will be an epic episode. We'll be looking at the development of the hoplite style of warfare which began around the 700 BCE mark, the beginning conflicts between Sparta and Argos, and of course, the Second Mycenaean War. So I won't be entirely abrogating my devotion to the podcast. 2020 has been a tough year for many people in many parts of the world. My heart goes out to any and all who have suffered throughout the pandemic, even more so to any of my listeners who struggled. I'm biased. You peeps rock, and your support means more than you can imagine. Let's hope that with the advent of a vaccine, life can return to a semblance of normality. That the distance forced upon us by necessity can become a thing of the past. I wish you all a happy and safe holiday season, a great new year, And please join me on January the 10th for episode 20, The Spartan Yoke. Until then, dear listeners, as always, take good care and speak soon. Please check out my website, spartanhistorypodcast.com, where I have extra information, photos, and maps of the areas discussed. You can find me on Twitter at Spartan underscore history and on Facebook too at Spartan History Podcast. If you like this episode and are keen to hear more, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you catch your pods from and leave a review. See you next time.